This episode has been brought to you by Notion. As a CMO Wild Apricot, I'm constantly asking my team questions like, how much is an email worth? How is that Google AdWords campaign performing? What's the ROI on that webinar we just held? At the business level, I'm asking about other metrics like, what's our CAC payback period? What was our net churn last month? And what was the average deal size for Q3 this year? These questions require multiple inputs from multiple different sources, often involving multiple people who have access in different places. With Notion, you can bring all your data together in one place. It connects with key tools like Jira, Mixpanel, Zendesk, and MailChimp. It allows multiple stakeholders to collaborate to generate key business reports. And most importantly, it gives you one hub for all your business intelligence data so that you always have a pulse on your business. Get started for free at www.usenotion.com. That address again is www.usenotion.com. And now on to the show. You're listening to How to SaaS, the number one podcast to grow your cloud software company with marketing, sales, and customer success in just 10 minutes a day. Each episode will feature a tip, hack, or secret to take your SaaS company to the next level. And now, here's your host and growth strategist, Shiv Narayanan. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of How to SaaS. My guest today is Zane Terrence. He is the Managing Director of Founders Investment Banking, and we're going to be covering a different kind of a topic today, which is what private equity investors look for when they're putting money into a SaaS company. Zane brings a wealth of experience to the conversation. He's been in the industry for over 18 years, uh, including his time as founder and CEO of a SaaS company, which he eventually sold. He eventually followed that up by joining Founders Investment Banking, where he's been a part of deals that total to over a billion dollars. His sweet spot is are deals that are between 20 to 50 million in ARR, but he works on deals of all sizes, as small as 5 million and north of 100 million. So Zane has a lot to contribute in this conversation, and we talk about the five key areas that he looks at when he's evaluating a SaaS company as an investment. They are number one, the market and the market potential. Number two, the financials. Number three, the sales and marketing engine. Number four, the underlying technology and intellectual property. And number five, the talent. Uh, I know a lot of listeners of the show are SaaS founders, CEOs, and execs, and looking at private equity may likely be an avenue that you're considering at some point, especially as your SaaS company reaches more mature stages. So there's a lot to learn from what Zane has to share in this episode. Uh, the second part that I just wanted to mention is that Zane hosts an, an annual event called Silicon Y'all down in, in Atlanta, um, and I'll be speaking at that event uh, this year where there's going to be a lot of private equity investors and founders and CEOs of other SaaS companies. Uh, the story that I'll be sharing is how we've been able to grow Wild Apricot to over $10 million in ARR without having any kind of a sales team. Uh, there's a lot of other great speakers, all of different sizes. Some are much bigger than us, some are smaller than us. Uh, it's a great event, and it's going to be a lot of great networking because it's uh, at this golf resort, and it's just, just awesome. So if you get a chance to come down, check out the event, and, and please do that. Otherwise, after the event, there's going to be a lot of great stuff uh, to share. Um, so that's it. Uh, please enjoy the episode, guys. Thanks. All right, Zane, welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey, Shiv. Great to talk to you today, my friend. It's kind of hot down south, but I've been excited about being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for being on and taking the time. Really appreciate you doing this. Uh, so why don't you walk the audience through your background, and then we'll take it from there. Sure, um, absolutely. And you might have to cut me off, friend. Um, I've... Uh, I started my career with IBM 
uh, back in the old days, um, uh, back in the late 80s. And uh, I worked with him for 12 years. And in that process, uh, my last three years, I worked for IBM Consulting. And that's when I got very involved in the internet. And back then, Shiv, this whole SaaS was called, you know, uh, an app on tap, you know, or network centric computing. Uh, so this was in the old days when you guys weren't even born. Um, but I ended up uh, leading a practice, you know, around network centric computing and um, um, app on tap. And then I was blessed enough. I was working on a project with IBM with Federal Express and we ended up um, creating a little product um, and it was a testing product for Federal Express and their e-learning um, project. And at the end of the day, and I still bleed blue, IBM let me take that product that we had created for IBM. Um, well, it was for FedEx, and uh, but I was an employee of IBM. They let me take that product, ended up starting a company. Uh, they, they helped me. And um, we built a company called Virtual Learning Technologies. We ended up getting a patent on web-based testing. And that's what got me into the banking world because three years into that company um, as an entrepreneur, my investors said, hey, Zane, you know, we think you've outpunted your coverage a little bit. I mean, we were growing like crazy um, and we had gotten a patent now on this product. It was 2000. It was um, early 2000. And we ended up hiring an investment banker uh, to help us go to market. And we sold it to Houghton Mifflin, um, in May of 2000. And so that was my first experience as an entrepreneur. I had started a company. Uh, I was funded by a lot of uh, angel investors and then VCs. Then we ran the company for two and a half to, to three years. And at that time, um, I decided to take an exit. Uh, we sold that company and then, um, I worked with them for a little while to transition the business out of Boston. And then, um, Shiv, I started getting very excited um, ab about helping others grow their software businesses. And in 2002, I started a venture capital model incubator, um, invested in a lot of software and internet companies, continued to do that for six years. Uh, we went through some great times and some bad times, sold another one of my companies to a publicly traded company in 2007 uh, that I jumped down in my incubator and became the CEO of uh, called Reveal Technologies. We sold that to a public we sell that to a public company in India back in 2007 called Core Technologies. And at that time, I was on the board of Founders Investment Banking um, and really, really enjoyed my board seat and had watched this boutique bank in, in, in the South grow. And my now partner who started the firm said, man, you know, one day you ought to bring your platform of investing and um, serving these these." internet companies and software companies, you ought to consider bringing it to our platform. And after a lot of discussions, 10 years ago, I moved over uh, to Founders Investment Banking. And I've really been a tour guide, you know, for the last 10 years for technology entrepreneurs to help educate them and serve them about what I call beyond the bank capital. You know, how do you as an entrepreneur traverse the capital continuum thoughtfully, you know, and intentionally? So I've done that for 10 years. We've been blessed enough to do about, um, uh, we've probably done, I've done a total of about 90 institutional deals in my career, but on the founders platform, uh, we've done over, over 55 uh, institutional deals to where we helped entrepreneurs of software and SaaS companies find growth capital, you know, um, or sometimes sell to a strategic buyer. So that's what I've been doing. And, and, and I tell you, I wake up every morning just uh, 
just excited because, you know, I get to learn about all these young companies and, and um, hear the personal stories of entrepreneurs. And uh, it's quite motivating, my friend. Mm-hmm. And over those 90 deals, how much in capital have you invested into businesses? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, with the people we brought in, um, it's well over a billion dollars. Um, but, I'll, but I'll tell you a little bit about our niche. Our niche is really, um, and we're a broker dealer, right? So we're, a, we're an investment banker that, that can securitize these, these companies. But we really work in the lower middle market. And so my typical deal um, is between uh, 20 and, and $35 million in enterprise value. So that's my sweet spot. So if you multiply that times um, 90 deals, you know, that would that would be kind of the um, valuations that we've done. So that's our that's our sweet spot. If you're smaller than, let's say, five million dollars in ARR as a SaaS company, um, we've we've done deals that are that are under that. But the buyer universe is smaller. But when you hit that, when you hit that, you know, five million dollars of ARR, what we're finding out Shiv, is that that they're, these buyers, both financial and strategics, um, really get excited. So, so, so that's kind of my sweet spot and kind of defines you know, the number of deals we've done and the amount of capital that's been deployed. That's incredible. And so what, what do you see? You know, you've, you've, been, you've been an operator historically, and now you're on the investor side. So what, what, how has that experience helped you in picking the deals that you're, you're investing in? That is a great question. Uh, I actually think that's that's our secret sauce. Um, you know, there's a lot of very smart people in the space I'm in, in private equity, investment banking, and buying and selling companies. Um, but I, I think there's something special about having an operator's perspective. Um, and so this biases me probably to every conversation that I have, you know, with an owner. Um, because I understand what it's like to pay payroll. I understand what it's like to move from an on-premise software solution to a SaaS solution. You know, I've, I've lived those battles of having, you know, a services business trying to move my revenue stream to, to a product business, right? And academically, you can understand all this and understand the factors that drive value. But if you don't understand the operational metrics, it makes it very difficult. So um, I, I like to think it colors everything we do when we're serving these entrepreneurs, whether we're investing or bringing an investor. It's it's always from a perspective of I'm an operator. And and, and also, I need to say this as well. Chief, uh, you know, I've, I've had some unbelievable failures, right? I mean, we've we've had, you know, some really good wins, but I've been at this long enough that, you know, I've made some bad investments and, you know, and, and, and I've uh, put it in a ditch a few times. <laughs> and that's what, you know, has been, has, has been huge for me. So that's a great question. What's been one of the worst investments you've made? Yeah, um, personally, uh, it's, it's companies I've been involved with. And I've got to be careful because I had, I had partners. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want anybody to feel any blame because, you know, I was there um, and I was actually driving, you know, the, the ship. But I, I would say it was misjudging the market. Yeah, you know, we, we honestly uh, got in the wrong market. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, as, as Warren Buffett says, 
he's seen a lot of lousy markets bring great management teams to their knees. I'm not saying we were a great management team, but we had done it before. And we did not spend the time in the discipline with market validation. We had a great idea, you know, great product, amazing implementation. The problem is we did not fully understand our market and we got um, our head handed to us. Right. So how do you evaluate that now when you come upon a potential investment to not fall into a trap like that again? Because yeah. a, a lot of companies struggle with that, right? They overestimate the market potential or they don't completely understand understand the buyer. So what do you look for when you're investing in companies to, to see that they don't have that critical flaw? Yeah, um, a deep understanding of their market um, with um, hopefully some studies to support it. You know, and 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 again, one of the number one things I look for is a subject matter expert in the market. This this is critical. You can be a great software engineer, a great marketer, um, but if you don't understand the nuances of a market, uh, it it can be very dangerous. The example I was giving you where I lost my shirt was actually in a directory. We were building a directory for doctors to help you know, elective procedure doctors drive leads to their practices. So plastic surgeons, bariatric surgeons. Um, and, and we had the most unbelievable funnel management, unbelievable technology, but we didn't understand how doctors and office managers actually bought. And so if we had had a subject matter expert that had sold managers before and physicians, uh, they would have told us, early on, guys, um, as we say down south, you know, you're peeing up a rope here, you know. <laughs> and so so I'm looking for I'm looking for somebody on the team that understands that market, that grew up in it, that has sold something else to it. That's that's as important as having the right technology team um, and everything else. So um, market experience, number one, and then just good old fashioned market validation. And one thing I encourage people to do, there's a lot of groups that will do a wonderful market validation study for you for $10,000, $20,000. And I recommend a lot of those. But if, you know, for some younger entrepreneurs that might not have that budget, go to your local business school or go to the business school that you respect and have contacts. Offer beers and pizza, you know, to the best market study and let it be a class project, right, to do a market study on your niche market. And um, we have seen some unbelievable results from that from business school. So, so that's what we're looking for. And, and, and one thing I always say, um, in God we trust, all others bring data. So I want to see that market data, the total addressable market, the competitive analysis. Why are you different? What are the barriers of entry of your competitors, you know, and what are your barriers to entry? And so those are the those are the kind of things we we explore. Chief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so market awareness is basically a key part of figuring out whether or not you're going to invest in a company. That makes total sense. Um, what else do you look for when you're when you're trying to evaluate uh, whether a SaaS company is, is worthy of capital? Yeah, um, there's uh, I, I have a list of really uh, seventeen factors that I go after. Um, every time. And really, they're all categorized on some of the things we've already talked about. First of all, the market. I want to see your brands, your competitive landscape, you know, your market size 
and the trajectory growth of that market are huge to me. So the first of the five major categories, I look at market, spend a lot of time in this. The second, of course, hey, I, I have to look at the financials, right? Because everybody wants to tell me they have this unbelievable company, unbelievable opportunity, they're just killing it. But at the end of the day, there's nothing more impressive to me, Sheev, than, than excellent orderly monthly financials that are that you're you're accounting properly for you know the the matching principle you're matching your expenses you know to your revenues in that month you're thinking about deferred revenue financials matter that's your track record that's the blood report that an investor looks at so financial is key um and, and in that of course you're going to have all your gross margin analysis and all that the other, the third big bucket, I would say, um, is sales and marketing. Uh, and of course, you know, you're you're an expert at this. You're going to be coming down to my annual conference. I do Silicon Y'all talking about this. So I bounce this off a lot of experts like yourself. But I want to understand what they know about sales and marketing, what they've done before, what their plan is. Because when we look at a unit economic model, especially of a SaaS business. You know, that unit economic model is so affected by the sales model. That's really what it is. I mean, once you have a great product and you have a reason for existence, let's be honest, a mature SaaS company, it's about sales and marketing, yeah. right? It's about managing that funnel, the top of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel. It's about your sales metrics. And so I'm really going to spend a lot of time on that. Now, I have to be sincere on this. I see a lot of opportunity sometimes with a great company in every area, but maybe they're subpar in sales and marketing. That to me as an investor, and when I'm working for my clients to help find them the right investor, that's a pickup, right? If I can get one of these companies, work with them, that have all these ingredients, but they're terrible at sales and marketing, I can model pretty quickly that we could grow this thing. We can add a lot of value. If I could hire somebody like you to come in one of these companies, we can really light the candle. So you don't have to be perfect in all these, but I'm going to assess you in each area to determine, you know, your value today and maybe what value add we could bring to really supercharge you. Does that make sense? It does. It's kind of like that uh, baseball saying, right? It's like two two runners run to face uh, first base and they both get there at the same time. One has perfect form, one doesn't. Who do you pick? And you take the one that doesn't have good form because if you teach him, he'll get there a lot faster. 100%. And and that's another thing you 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 bring up after, you know, market financial sales and marketing. We go to talent. And one of the key points you just brought up is the coachability of the team. Are are they really learners? And one thing I love about technology entrepreneurs, you know, number one, I feel like I'm getting a little older now. I'm 51, man. <laughs> uh, ho ho hopefully I don't live like I'm 51. But the the young talent we're seeing is so coachable. You know, there's there's all these problems us old investors have with millennials. But let me tell you something. One problem I don't have is is the coachability. They're they're learners. They're insatiable. You know, have insatiable appetites. And if they're scary bright and a learner, man, we can fix a lot of this stuff, right? So talent is the fourth area. I want them coachable. I want the technical talent, sales and marketing talent, and a culture. Five years ago, I would have probably told you, Sheev, that I'm not paying an outsized multiple for culture. That has totally changed now. Right. We are seeing an extra turn of revenue. Let's suppose 
a SaaS business would be, you know, a four times revenue multiple. We are sometimes seeing an extra turn based on culture due diligence. If you've got the talent, the team, the, the, you know, the, the alignment of your culture and you don't have the turn and churn with your culture, that's worth a lot of money. So talent is really important. We do look at experience. Um, you know, we bet on the jockey, not the horse. Right. We like experience, but let me tell you a model we're seeing in the talent world, just like in sales and marketing. Man, I can bring in great talent. I can bring in a 40-year-old, 45-year-old, 51-year-old like me that has some gray hair that's done <laughs> some of these deals. Yeah. We can bring them on a solid SaaS company that's doing, you know, three or four million in ARR. And 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 they can help. They can serve. They can help get you to the next level. And the second you bring that experienced help on that fits your culture your valuation goes through the roof, right? Because it de-risks it for investors like myself and the, and the people we work with. So talent would be the fourth big bucket. The fifth big bucket I look at um, is technology. Um, we, we, we do have to understand your architecture, you know, your features, your functions, your, your technology debt. We see a lot of companies that have forgotten, oh, shoot, you know, we've been building this company on a shoestring. You, you know, we haven't been able to continually invest and our tech. And there's tech debt. And investors like me understand that, but we are going to dig in and understand, hey guys, you're behind. And if we invest in you or find you an investor and I'm working for the seller, um, we, we just got to be honest that there's going to have to be a lot more capital expenditure put in this company to take it to the next level, right? So, so we look at that. And then the ownership of your intellectual property. This is one of my pet peeves, Chief, because I've seen this over and over again. It's what I call one of the deal killers, one of the big deal killers. We we look at a company, we work with them, we, we try to underwrite it, and then toward the end, we figure out the ownership of the intellectual property is fuzzy. Explain, friend, ex explain that. Give, give an example of that. Yeah, this is the kiss of death. I'm gonna, I'll give you a, a, some examples that are way too close to home. <laughs> um, one is that maybe you've had a lot of third-party contractors work on your solution throughout the years, which is fine. You know, maybe you've used a global delivery model, you know, and, and that's fine. And it's good. And it's sometimes it's best practices. But if you don't have the right legal documents where all that work was a work for hire, it was very clear that the deliverable of the work that you paid for it and you own it. This can come back to haunt you. I have seen deals get done and, and get announced, and then out of the woodwork come six, seven developers that once worked on the code, or even the content part of the code, or the user interface, and say, wait a second, I own part of that intellectual property. And it causes a terrible situation. So it's clear, um, uh, demonstrable ownership of the intellectual property. That's that's the key. So um, the, the other place I've seen it is getting a, a little sloppy with open source. You use some open source um, and, and, and maybe not totally clear, you know, of your rights to resell that and use it in the context of a bigger project. Got it. Got it. No, those are really good points. I've seen a lot of companies do that and run into trouble. So that's good. OK, what's number six? Um, that, that, that was really my five major categories. I have five major categories with several subcategories in that, but it's market, financial, sales and marketing, technology, and talent. 
those are my five big areas. Mm-hmm. And and when you when you come across companies, do you find that is there, is there a pattern in terms of where they're stronger and weaker, or uh, is it different with each each investment? Yeah, that that's a great question. It's based on the there is absolutely a pattern based on the maturity of the business, where they are, and what I call the the maturity cycle, and so. Just for for ease of discussion, because it's the way I presented, you know, the companies I'm most interested in based on their size. You know, this five million in ARR to twenty five million in ARR. Right. The younger companies, one that's doing two or three million, we typically see that company led by a technical CEO. Okay. Now, either a technical CEO or a a sales and marketing CEO. It's one of the two. And that's fine. That's the way companies get started by a technologist or a sales and marketing person. So at that stage, they haven't been able to build out their culture and organization. So that's fine. Typically where they're weak, very, very weak is in the financials. Right. You know, they, they just like, like me when I was a first time entrepreneur at 33 years old and I had 50 employees and everything, I was, I didn't understand the importance of financial uh, housekeeping. I say, well, crap, just send our books to the accountant, make sure I don't pay me any taxes, you know, mm. let's. Well, that's not right. You need metrics. You need to close the books on time every month. You need very clear um, descriptions and categorization of your expenses. This is absolutely fundamental. So small companies typically fall down in that area, and a sophisticated investor is going to get frustrated. You what, know? What, kind of metric, what kind of metric would they be missing? Let's give an example. Yeah, what, what they would be missing is, is um, miscategorizing um, a, a lot of their expenses, um, uh, not treating deferred revenue correctly, not not carrying it on the balance sheet. So if somebody pays me up front for a, a license of a SaaS, you know, piece of software, I just take all that revenue and recognize it. Put, put, it, saying, put it in January instead of amortizing exactly. it over the year. Exactly. Yeah. And it really messes you up because you get all these metrics where we're like, hey, you know, what's your AR? What's your retention rate? You know, what's your CAC? All these metrics, and you figure out. They haven't been doing the fundamentals of financial housekeeping. So, so that's what we see in the younger companies. Um, also, they typically have their – if they're making any uh, EBITDA, their, their EBITDA is typically overstated. And let me explain this. When you're a young company, a lot of people are doing a lot of jobs, right? For free. <laughs> you're not getting paid much. Yep. You know, you're, you're under market salaries. And so they think, but hey, I'm making EBITDA. I'm making money. Well, not really. If a real investor comes in, we're going to professionalize that business. And I'm sorry, a true financial person makes this much money. You know, a true CEO makes this much money. And we're going to professionalize this business. So the young companies really struggle there. As you get, as you, as, as they go down the curve of size, they typically get more sophisticated. You know, they're able to hire talent. And, and, and Sheev, you and I have talked about this before. I'm a talent uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm emphatic about talent. The older I get, the more I'm like, it, was I an idiot in my younger days by some <laughs> hires I made? It's about talent. Absolutely. You know, yeah, and we don't do much down in Alabama very well, but we do play football very well, if you know anything <laughs> about football. Yeah. And one of our football coaches, uh, Nick Saban, that coaches Alabama, he's all about two things, man. Talent, recruiting talent. He says, you know what I found out? Coaching talent is easier than coaching people without talent, number yep. one. Number two, he focuses on processes. 
Once you get the talent, you get the processes. So the more mature the company is, the more talent they're able to afford and attract, and the more mature their processes are. So that's that's kind of what we see. But we see, again, a lot of opportunity in these young companies because they haven't had the cash. And and, and here's where I'm a little biased, Chief. I, I go on this all the time. People say, well, why should I raise money? And I'm not saying you always should, but let me tell you what I've found out. Whoever has the most money wins. Wins, period, yeah. all day, every day. And you, and you know why? Because they can, they can hire the best yeah. talent. They can show the talent, come with us. We've got the resources to last, to be an enduring, sustainable company. I see so many talented young companies that say, I'm so talented, I'm going to do it bootstrapping. That's great to a certain point. And I'm a big fan of that to a certain point. But when you see you have the market, you have the technology, you have the team, the opportunity, the windows open, friend, you got to giddy up. And that's when capital makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I agree with that. Whoever has the most money wins. It's more than, it's multiple reasons, actually. You can spend money on the most talent, but you can also spend the most amount of money to acquire a customer. You know, a so. man. And at the end of the day, where does your main valuation come from? Your, your growth, new customers, a land and expand, new customers, growth, and the retention of those customers. And and, and, and just to your point, and, and I want to explore this with you sometime in, in person, we're seeing more and more that quality companies are spending a lot of money on retention. Used to, this didn't show up in the budget, right? It was marketing and you just did some retention stuff. Now we're seeing 25, 30, 35% of the marketing budget spent on a retention program. And the reason is that's what's driving your enterprise value. So put the money where it drives value. So so anyway, I'm I'm a real fan of once you've wrung out the risk of your SaaS company, really start thinking about thoughtful capital. And and that's value added capital, not just money, but bring the right people and talent with the money. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about and, and by the way, your point about the retention, that's where the rise of customer success has come about in recent years where mm-hmm. now it's because it's recurring revenue, you have to find a way to keep that. And also expanding those accounts, that's what the customer success team is responsible for. So onboarding, retention, and expansion. Man, you are speaking my language. Hey, and, and I've, I've got to apologize for getting excited sometimes, man. I just get, <laughs> I get so excited about this stuff because it matters. It's people's babies. It's their valuation. This stuff, this stuff has, um, has a huge impact on your team. Um, the owners of the company, the investors. So, you know, I get pretty passionate about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Me too. <laughs> we have that in common. Um, what, what about when, when companies are moving up? So two to three million, I understand. They don't have the financials locked down. What about more mature companies? Five, 10, 25 million. What similarities do you see there? And what are some places where they can spend time to improve their processes or anything else that you've noticed? Yeah. Um, and, and as they're moving up, it's 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 the upgrading of their talent in core areas. Their marketing, you know, executives, um, their HR, you know, their talent executives finding talent, their CFO, um, and and then their tech team. So it's basically upgrading the talent. And there's different levels that you're at based on the maturity of the company. But that's that's absolutely what I see. So and and and, and a lot of times, and I don't want to be judgmental, but a lot of times. You know whether or not a company does, you know, grows on this curve and is successful is dependent upon the original founders and management team. Are they willing to take a different seat on the bus? You know what I'm saying. And one of the killers here is an ego. 
And I will use myself as an example. You know, in my first company, um, I had some very candid uh, investors and, and a board, an advisory board, and they loved me enough to tell me the truth. And basically, they told me they're the ones that hired the investment banker and said, man, we got to do something. And the reason is, they said, Zane, you're really good at starting companies. You've done a really good job, you know, getting the team and getting excited. But you, we don't think you can scale a business. And that hurt my feelings. But it was absolutely true. They said, we just don't think you can do what it takes to take this company to the next level because it's a whole different set of skills. And so even before we sold, they encouraged me to go out with, with them, really, and hire a CEO. She, this was my company. I started it. IBM helped me get loose and fund it. And they basically said, you're not the guy to take it to the next level. So 18 months before we sold, I became the president instead of the CEO and founder. And we hired who became our CEO. I've been there, done that guy that had an unbelievable emotional IQ that was very gentle with me. But let me tell you what he did for our company in 18 months. He professionalized it. And so the difference in a company that grows up and makes this curve that we really see is sometimes the founder saying, you know what, we're going to bring the best of the best CEO in here and, and get in a role that they're most passionate about and they're best about. They can be, for me, I was a selling CEO. I was a software guy, understood it well, but I was passionate about my tools. So I kind of led that part of the business. So that's the biggest difference I see are they coachable. I will tell you, in my experience, 15% of the founders can take their company to the next level. Of a SaaS company, I would say 15% have that special triathlete, that business triathlete approach of being an amazing leader, technically savvy, marketing savvy, a great communicator. Um, you know, it's just only, I'm just sorry, that's just about right. And you really have to have self-awareness as a leader and listen to people around you to determine if you're that person. So that's the biggest issue I see. Will the founder get in the, on the right seat of the bus or do they have an ego that won't allow them to do that? You've opened up so many threads that I want to touch on. Uh, so let's let's start with uh, the upgrading of the talent. To expand on why the talent needs to be upgraded. Because, I mean, I understand it, but just for the audience, what uh, what changes when, let's say, you get to $10 million in ARR and what, what changes in terms of what the company needs to do that the current talent cannot do? Like, what, what, is, what should the next priorities be? Because, for example, you still need to acquire customers, so you still need your VP of sales. So what, what's, what's different? Oh, great point. Scale. Operating at scale and managing at scale is totally different than managing um, a, a, a more startup, immature company. Because the level of sophistication doesn't just increase, Sheev, it, it geometrically increases. So, for example, now you're dealing, let's say, with investors. So these investors, you're going to have to have a level of sophistication as the CFO to really provide the board packets, the information that these sophisticated investors, they're, you know, they're, they're bankers, senior lenders, um, all kinds of uh, you know, private equity as well. It's just a different level of sophistication at scale in sales and marketing. Now you're really, really dealing with the intricacies of sales plans, commission plans, um, you know, your, your Rolodex to have the right consulting talent that you can bring in. 
and you know your company. It's just it's a whole different ball game to operate at scale and the sophistication. It would be like me saying I'm a really good cook. Come down south and I could cook some burgers for you and steaks on the grill. <laughs> but if you really put me with a real chef in a real industrial kitchen, it's I, it just it's just two different things. Right, right. No, I completely understand. And that's where the concept of establishing processes and and you also mentioned something interesting uh, just a couple of moments ago. You mentioned that the the CEO that they brought in to to basically replace you, and when you took over as president, he, he had an incredible emotional IQ, which is that at that scale you need yes you need a leader that can lead people, and their people is that person's biggest lever. Uh, yes, right. Chief, you you said it better than me. And a startup. I can be this crazy entrepreneur like I am, you know, running like crazy and I can make things happen and people will follow me. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs are very, very focused, direct people. And some of them, some of us are quirky. You know what I'm saying? When you get to this level of scale, you have, you can't be quirky. You've, you've got to be stable, emotional IQ. You've got to be an impeccable listener because now you're managing a culture, you're recruiting talent and, and the very talent that makes this this young founder successful, and I call an entrepreneur, you know, entra, you know, entra, enter, pre, before, neural, you think. An entrepreneur sometimes enters this little business, starts something before they even think it through, but their passion gets them there. Now, once you start really getting a real business, you need somebody that is seasoned um, and that's really, really understands, like you said, people, what motivates them. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs, we're, we were passionate about the product or the market, right? When you're leading a company, you're going to be passionate about that. But you said it. My number one passion better be my team. My number one passion, I better know everything about your family, everything about your motivations. I ought to be constantly meeting as a CEO with my top six you know, direct reports saying, hey, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How how are we providing you the opportunity that you always dreamed of? That's where you're you're it, it you don't need to be behind your computer coding. When I see CEOs coding, <laughs> you know, I go and CEOs sometimes, she even and the ones that, that are under pressure. And you really don't know who somebody is until you see them under pressure. But a lot of these startup companies, they start struggling with cash flow or whatever, they get under pressure. I can tell real quickly if they're gonna be able to be a CEO of a large of a larger business. Because the ones that can't when they get under pressure, do you know what they do? They go back to what they did when they started their company. Yep. So for me, when I got under pressure in my two companies, and my second one I was better, I would get on the phone and start calling customers. I was trying to sell stuff because I always sold my way out of cash flow problems. I, I, I'm good at selling. I feel comfortable with my customers. So I go to a place of safety. My technology CEOs, I'll never forget, I walked in one night, a guy that we were uh, working with to get investment, and it, it was in a tough time. I mean, cash flow was tough. He was scared. We were trying to close a deal. You know, and I go over to his office about 8 o'clock at night, and he should really be thinking holistically. And he's there coding like crazy. I said, man, what have you been doing today? He said, man, I've been coding this new module. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, dude. This is not <laughs> your focus. So sorry to harp on that, but that's a good indicator whether or not you can lead a scalable company. Right. Um, and, and, and it's interesting you brought that up because the CEO that understands that also understands that when you're at that stage, 
your growth levers, the ones that are driving the valuation of the business, that'll take it to the next stage, are are well beyond the levers of acquisition. I can I can give you an example on our end. Uh, for example, we process about 200 million plus in transactions every year, but we currently oh. don't take a percentage of that, right? So, I, to, to in my seat, you know, I'm focused on acquisition, but at the same time, I'm thinking about how do we capture that business value that's already in our business, right? Um, so I'm assuming that when you're looking at these investments, you're looking at can we find levers that this company can pull that are already inside the business? Absolutely. I mean, fantastic example. And of course, our financial word for that is synergy, right? If we're buying something, investing in it, can our capital or can some other operating companies we're involved with are there already value centers that we can help this management team unlock because of our synergies that we bring to the table or because of, of better talent that just needs to um, exploit those, those uh, value centers that are already there? And again, you, you don't have to be perfect, right? I don't want young entrepreneurs to start saying, oh, God, I've got to measure perfect on all these metrics. You really, you really don't. But let me tell you what you have to do or you're never going to get investment. You're never going to sell equity in your in your SaaS business. You have got to be in a good market and have a reason to exist. You got to do that. And number two, you have got to have a customer retention story because that's the one number I need to see to, to figure out that you're going to be okay. If your customers are staying with you, it tells me you're providing value, you know, and I always look at usage. Shiva, I always want to see usage of the application or, you know, how heavily is it used? Because that's an indication of how much they need you. But it also is an indication of retention. They don't have anywhere to go, yeah. right? If they, if they start leaving you and they're using it, it tells me, oh, shoot, you've got a competitor that's starting to chip at your market share. So I tell entrepreneurs, focus on your market. Listen, 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 listen to your market and and your retention. And again, if you do those two things, that tells me you have a good technology, tells me you have a good market. Um, it just tells me so much about your business. Yeah, I know, absolutely. And, and by usage, you're talking about, you know, things like daily active users. Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to see the usage logs. Now, sometimes, you know, we just sold a business that, you know, provided a solution uh, a, a CRM for higher education. So they were really selling to academic advisors and provosts. So I don't care that all the faculties using that solution, they shouldn't. But those academic advisors, when we found out, the first thing they did after they got up their email every morning when they got to work is open up this application and it stayed open all day and they were using it. We were like, oh my goodness, that's value. So yeah, we're looking at, at, the, at the target market user active active users and really the amount of time they use the application a day based on their role. Right. Um, let, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. I mean, we've gone through how, you know, the things that you're evaluating, which is really good, but uh, I think it'd be good for the audience to hear from you, especially since you're in the space and you're meeting companies and all that to talk about the investment landscape right there. Cause there's a lot of trends and things are happening in the market. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And 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 sorry, I kind of dove down in some of these valuation factors. Oh, um, I, I think it's great. Yeah, it's um, really valuable. Uh, very, very quickly, what we're seeing in the market, of course, you know, 
I'm I'm a captain obvious to say that the this is a very frothy market for quality SaaS companies. The investor community, both strategic and financial buyers, and, and, and let me describe that in case some of our, our listeners um, don't don't understand it. Financial buyers are basically private equity groups, growth equity groups, venture capitalists, people financially that are investing in these companies for a good return. Those are financial buyers, and they're really paying very high valuations right now. Everybody thinks, oh, a strategic buyer, which is like an operating company that wants your product or service, would pay more. We're seeing financial buyers sometimes bid more than even strategic buyers. So financial buyers are very, very active right now for the right you know, SaaS type companies. There's two categories that they're buying. They're buying add-ons and bolt-ons. So they already own a platform software company that they're investing in. And one of the growth strategies of that company is to go acquire other companies. And you call those bolt-ons and, and add-ons. The other type of buyer is a strategic buyer. And these, oh, 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 excuse me, the other thing that financial buyers buy are platform companies. Those are companies that they see a real mover in a market that they can invest their money in and then start bolting on and adding on other companies. So they buy platform companies if you're pretty big and you have to be a pretty nice size. I would say a minimum of $10 million in ARR to really get a lot of interest from financial buyers to be a platform company. We're seeing deals under $5 million ARR being bought regularly um, as add-ons and bolt-ons. Um, the other type buyer is like an Oracle or an IBM or Marketa that's out there. They, they have a growth initiative and they've determined that your company helps accelerate that rather than go greenfield it, you know, build the product. It's a make or buy decision. They'll come in sometimes and say, let's just buy this company. And they're having a huge uh, interest in smaller SaaS companies right now because it, you know, it's uh, very accretive to their earnings. So with that said, those are the two folks that are the big buyer categories that are driving the market. And it's really exciting for owners because the valuations are, are still at a very frothy level. So that's what we're seeing. Great time um, to, to have a partner um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of demand. And, and on the strategic side, what do you see as being the main reasons for buying, buying these companies right now? Yeah, the main reason is the board of this strategic company says, you know what, this is one of our three top factors we're trying to do, and maybe they're not in a market, and you've got a company that has a really good install base in a market they want to go deeper in, or you have a great module or solution in a market they're already in, but they don't have that solution and they want to cross sell. So when we build a unit economic model, a synergy model with the small SaaS companies with, with a strategic buyer that has a very large customer base that they think they can sell into, it, it's very exciting and they're willing to pay a large multiple because of the, of the value. Yeah, and just for the audience, what you can do there is then you can, um, let's say Wild Apricot, we have a decent donations platform, but there's a lot of better donation providers out there. If we wanted to go out there and get a donation software, then we can go to our existing customers, cross-sell that, but we've already spent the money to acquire that customer, so we don't have any additional expenses. So now we can generate expansion revenue from our existing base. Well said. Yeah, so so that's what we're seeing, you know, in the market. And and with this, you know, everybody talks about multiples all the time. You know, where's a multiple? Where's a multiple? I heard my friend sold his SaaS company for eight times, you know, um, projected revenue. Well, these deals are all unique, okay? But I will tell you on quality companies, 
even, you know, in the four, you know, $5 million ARR, I'm looking at the last four that, that we've represented or been a part of either as owners or representing the seller. And I've got a healthcare SaaS company that we did at 6.5 times last 12 months revenue. Forward revenue, we did a 4.1 times projected revenue for a payments company, a vertical SaaS payments company. Um, education SaaS company, we did 5.2 times projected um, revenue valuation. And then we just did a financial, a fintech SaaS company at 5.1 times projected revenue. So we're seeing these kind of valuations. Now, we'll tell you, these are really, really quality companies. I'm looking at their growth rates. One had a 100% growth rate, one a 48% growth rate, one a 30% growth rate, another one a 100% growth rate. That's important. Their net retention, two of these were in the SMB space. Their net revenue retention, this is revenue retention. 90, uh, both of those were greater than 90%. Uh, the healthcare SaaS company had 100% retention. Uh, the education SaaS company had 90% retention. And then the gross margins, uh, every one of them was higher than 80, 84%. One of them was as high as 92% gross margins. So that gives you an idea of where things trade, but I'll just tell you, it's different. You got to get your blood taken by a valuator or a bank like me to kind of give you a dispassionate, rational view um, of where your business is. Because I see a lot of SaaS businesses that she've, you couldn't give it away. Right. You couldn't give it away. Well, mm. there's many other factors there too, like uh, how dependent are you on your employees or suppliers or or, right. uh, or particular customers and how dependent are you on the CEO? Are you Can the management team handle it? There's, there's many others. But uh, Absolutely. I think your friend John Warlow, the guy who wrote Built to Sell, has done a lot of stuff there. Um, yes. You mentioned this concept of uh, of multiples. Can you can you um, can you break that down for the audience? Like what what determines a high multiple? Because there's many portions of that. Retention's a piece of that. Growth rate is a piece of that. EBITDA. Like what are the biggest things that make up the, that multiple? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I'm I'm gonna tell you one of the biggest things is size. Because of that conversation we had earlier, you know, when you get to a certain size and scale, that shows an investor you've got a reason to be in existence. So number one, size matters. And I'm giving some just high level thumbnails. Greater than five million in ARR is a real cool window where your valuations can be toward that five and six revenue multiple versus, you know, a two to three revenue multiple. So size and ARR, um, your year-over-year growth rate, growth is critical. They want to see growth. Even if you don't have the resources you need, they want to see growth. Um, your total addressable market, is it a little bitty niche market or is it a market you know that's greater than a billion dollars? That's what they're looking for. Um, I would say your retention um, is huge. Net revenue retention we talked about, your gross margin, and then, um, and then your CAC payback period. You know, your cost of acquisition that you're an expert at, she, that is just very critical because it plays into their economic model and their risk-adjusted future cash flow, right? Because they've got money, investors that are buying and strategic buyers and financial. We've got capital to put against your sales and marketing strategy, but we want to see the unit economics that if we spend all this money, we're going to get a payback and that CAC payback period is critical. If it's under 12 months, you know, or over 12 months is kind of what we're looking at. Right. Oh, this is great, man. Uh, I really want to appreciate you for doing this. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we close up here? 
Man, I, I just appreciate what you're doing, and I want to encourage all the entrepreneurs out there. Um, stay focused. Um, think about your team, uh, your product, and your market. And at the end of the day, uh, hopefully, uh, you'll be blessed with a good valuation. The other, um, I do want to encourage uh, your entrepreneurs on one other thing. If you are in the SaaS business, the horizontal vertical SaaS business, I want to encourage you that you have picked the number one neighborhood to build your business in. And let me explain that. The valuations in recurring revenue SaaS businesses are higher than any other category of business on the planet. So just like if you're building your dream home, don't build it in the hood, build it in a nice neighborhood. The good news is you're building a fascinating, you're building in a great neighborhood. So keep the faith, focus on good, strong people, uh, building a good culture, good market, and, um, I hope you do well. No, that's great. And uh, why don't you actually tell the audience about uh, your Silicon Y'all event? Because I think that would be good for them to hear about. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, we, we do a, a, an annual event because our heart is to educate um, you know, software entrepreneurs. Um, and we bring, uh, I think this year we've got 11 of the top private equity and uh, VC groups in the country that invest in SaaS are coming down to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and then we're going to have some great coaches and mentors. And of course you are one of those, um, Sheev, and I hope you're, you're getting ready for your topic. Yes, uh, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're, we're, we're excited about that. And, um, they can go to Silicon y'all, you know, Y A L L for those of you that aren't from the South.org. You can see a little bit about it, but, um, you know, it's an elite retreat we do and we hope we can provide value. And also if somebody wants to, you know, can't get there, it's a very, it's a very small audience that we let come in. Um, we'll be glad to send the information from the speakers, you know, to them. Yeah. I highly recommend it to the audience. It's a great lineup of speakers and a lot of, uh, the pri uh, premium players are going to be there, including a lot of great, uh, investors. So it's a great event you're putting together, Zane. Um, and last but not least, I also do want to appreciate you for doing this. It's uh, a lot of great insight you shared. And I think anybody that's out there building a company or thinking about potentially selling their company, you, you've given a lot of takeaways to them. So I appreciate you doing this. Hey, thanks for putting up with me, my friend. <laughs> thanks, man. See you soon. That's it for today's episode, guys. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and to check us out at www.howtosass.com and we will see you next time.